Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever seen such a short first reading? Everybody kind of paused and went, is that all there is? Well, guess why? We're beginning a sermon series today. And uh, we're going to cover these verses. In fact, we're going to be doing a ten-part sermon series on Paul's letter to the Colossians, which is four chapters long. And because it's only four chapters long, I, re- I really would like you to at least once this week sit down and spend five or ten minutes just reading through Paul's letter to the Colossians so you have a sense, so you get an overview. And if you think that we're only taking a small piece or, you know, in my case, a rather large piece, uh, for any of you who have been to Wednesday nights in the Gospel of John, we're going to try to cover this four-chapter this four letter in the next 10 weeks, and it's going to be a challenge at times, and you'll get a sense of that even as we launch into this first sermon. Colossae, most of you would recognize, or at least probably would recognize, there's no city by the name of Colossae around today. This is a city that at one time was a great city. In fact, if you look at uh, the book of Esther... King Xerxes, who actually in some translations is called Ahasuerus, in 481 passed through Colossae. And it was a great city at the time. It was a city along the road, along the trade routes. And therefore, many people used Colossae. But it was in a tri-city area in the Lycus Valley. The Lycus is a river and it's a very fertile area. And there were these three cities that popped up around there. And what happened was two of them grew in stature, and Colossae dropped in stature. Hariopolis, which is one of those two other cities, was known for its hot springs, medicinal purposes, some believed miraculous healings. And it was surrounded by these limestone formations due to volcanic and earthquake activity at one time. And in fact, the, the city today in Turkey is, is known as um, a cotton patch or a cotton house, a cotton castle, because of the white that's around it. And apparently it's a beautiful area. And then you have Laodicea, which really rose up and became an incredibly wealthy city. And if you look in the seven letters to the seven churches early in the book of Revelation, you'll see Laodicea and and The angel, and uh, John writes, the angel reports, you're a city of great prosperity, of great riches and wealth. But they were lukewarm because of that. But these are the three cities that you see around each other. And Heriopolis is growing. And Laodicea is growing. And they're both successful. And Colossae is slowly dying. You know, have you ever been to a three-city area? I have twice. The first time 
was actually around the first time that I flew in a plane. I was 20, 21 years old. Not like today where kids are flying, you know, from early on. I didn't fly till I was like 20, 21 years old. And I was flying to ABE Airport. Does anyone know what ABE Airport is? Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton. Very good. And the reason that I was flying to ABE Airport is because I was flying to meet Meredith's parents. That's the first time I flew. And there was these, these, these tri-cities. And I really kind of knew a little bit about Allentown and Bethlehem because of the steel industry and Pittsburgh, the connection. I never even heard of Easton. That's where they were from, Easton Area High School, by the way. Anyway, I came to know these three cities. The next time I flew to a tri-city area, it was GSO Airport. GSO, what is it? Greenville? Actually, it's High Point and Winston-Salem. That's what Meredith told me. Greensboro, High Point, and Winston-Salem. And the reason Meredith told me is because her parents moved there, and that's the next time I flew to a tri-state city. <laughs> you know, but these different cities, they rise and they fall. It depends on what's going on there, and they're known for different things. The same thing back then. But Colossae had dropped. It was one of those formerly important places. It lost its stature. It lost its position. And, and most of us are familiar with former greatness, aren't we? I mean, think about athletes, you know, who at one time were great athletes. And maybe their bodies are broken down or their has-beens. You know, former stars or former singers who have lost their voices. And how about people who used to run companies or were CEOs or were really, really powerful people at one time. I had someone say to me two or three years ago um, that people like that that have moved here and they're retired, they're known as pips. Have you ever heard this? Previously important people. <laughs> and probably most of us know pips, right? And they're still trying to run things. They're still trying to hold on to that past. They almost have this mindset in their life where they're going around and, and, and they're either thinking to themselves or they're even saying, do, do you know who I am? And I want to say to those people, I don't even know who you was. <laughs> but I mean, we all know people like that. And that must have been how Colossae felt. Within 10 or 15 miles, these three cities. And Colossae, by the end of the first century, was pretty much not known because it was falling so rapidly. It was a city in many ways of no consequence. And Paul, number one, Paul did not establish the church there. He had never been there. But Paul wrote this letter out of care and compassion. He cared, first of all, for Epaphras. Epaphras was, if you will, maybe the church planter and certainly the pastor 
and overseer of these three churches, these three cities. And Epaphras came to see him and probably poured out to him this struggle that he was dealing with, with Colossae. And he never condescended. He never looked down his nose at them. Never talked about their former greatness or how they had slid. Nothing like that. In fact, he talked to them as brothers and sisters. He cared for them. He loved them. And he wanted to offer some direction to them. You know, in reality, Paul was not in a position to really have much pride himself. At one time he did. When he was this Pharisee and he was this rising star, and literally the Lord knocked him off his high horse, and he learned humility, and he learned servanthood, In fact, Paul at this time was in prison. This is known as a prison letter, along with Ephesians. There's a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians, by the way. Another letter that's related to it is Philemon. You're going to discover that as this series unfolds. And he wrote Philippians, and he wrote First and Second Timothy, and he wrote Titus. All of these from when he was in prison. And he was trying to reach out to the churches. And he chose Colossae because he cared about Epaphras and he cared about the church. He did not want to see the church fail. And the reason, most of the time, that Paul writes these letters is because individuals or church communities were in trouble. And the Colossians were in trouble at this point. There was a heresy raging. It was known as the Colossian heresy. What a surprise. But the Colossian heresy had a lot of different nuances to it. And the reason is, is because it was this city that was famous and a lot of roads leading in it was an important trade route road. A lot of different beliefs, religions, philosophies came together and clashed in this city. And so people would take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Cafeteria religion. Sound familiar? A lot of people do that in our culture and even in our church. And so it was eclectic. And it was syncretistic. And it was one of the birthplaces of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early church heresy. It's based on the Greek term gnosis, which means knowledge. Which means I have an secret knowledge that you really don't know about, which is why I believe what I believe and hold on to what I hold on to. And you know, we've got people like that today too. Well, I've got my own belief system. I believe in God. Well, what's that like? Well, you know, I just believe in God and I've got my own beliefs. It's secret. And they live their life out of that secret and that's what happened then. And the syncretism that took place had many different nuances to it. Let me give you some examples of that. First of all, there was a Jewish influence. And even with that, the Jewish influence had nuances. They kept certain Sabbaths or holy days. They had certain rules and laws that they lived according to. They were very very ritualistic, traditionalist, moralistic. And then you had these philosophies that clashed there too. 
asceticism that was based in stoicism. You know, kind of you deprive the body and you discipline the body because it's the mind that's important. And you have the Epicureans that really what was important was enjoying life because the body didn't matter in the first place. And what that did was that had an influence on how they viewed Jesus Christ. That Jesus, number one, could not be fully God and fully man because spirit cannot be, if it's perfect, connected with matter because matter's evil. And secondly, the cross makes no sense because God and, and human beings can't come together. So they depreciated the person and position and really the work, what Jesus came to do on the cross, of Jesus Christ. Ooh, good timing. And that's what was going on in Colossae. On top of that, there was angel worship. And we see a lot of people who give a lot of focus to the angels, but not much to the Word of God. And all this came together. And there were people who were confused, not knowing exactly what to believe or how to live. There were people on the one hand who were strict disciplinaries, because they bought into this philosophy. Or they were antinomian. That's against any kind of law and just indulged themselves. You had everything. Same thing we see today. So Paul felt the need to jump into the arena here. And to speak to what was going on. To not really get caught up in their status or lack of status. To get caught up in their past but to address who they were, where they were, and what God's desire for them was. That's what Paul is writing into. That's what you need to understand as we enter this letter. And so we have, at the very beginning, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle by God, and our brother Timothy. Let's stop there. First of all, they probably would know who Paul was at this point. This is probably around 60 A.D. Paul had been doing missionary work for 20 years. They probably knew of Paul because of Epaphras, because if someone does something or shares something with you that has had a spiritual impact on you, you probably talk about them. So they were familiar with Paul. And Paul refers to himself as an apostle. In other words... I'm sent by someone. I'm sent by God. This is not my own initiation. It's not because I'm so wonderful and important. It's because God sent me. And God sends me into your situation. Because you have some challenges. And I want to help you address those challenges in your life. That Paul was appointed by God. It wasn't a self-appointment. It wasn't that I'm so wonderful and great and I know everything. That's not what he was saying or doing. In fact, if you read Philippians chapter 3, one of those prison letters, Paul writes about his background and how it doesn't matter his background. That's not what's important. What's important is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's what's important. And then he says, 
and our brother Timothy. Now, I think that's a really significant line because I think it's a very gracious line. Because if you know when Paul and Timothy met, you can look at this in Acts chapter 16. Timothy was probably a child, maybe a young man at that point. Paul's out doing his missionary journeys. He's out preaching the gospel. He's getting persecuted. And Timothy's observing all this. And when Paul, from prison, would write to Timothy, he would refer to Timothy, my child. Because he was like a child to him. He loved him. He had picked up, I mean, he observed Paul getting persecuted and he still followed in his footsteps and became an evangelist, a pastor. He was willing to take that risk. And so he cherished that relationship and he was like a son to him. But when he writes to other people, he wants them to understand there's no hierarchy here. This is not a hierarchical structure that we're in. We are brothers and sisters. We may all be different, and we may all be different places, in different places in our lives. And some of us may be more different than others. But there's no hierarchy here. I'm not any better than anyone here. I'm just called into a different role than you're called into. And we're all called to serve the body of Christ and serve each other. And we're all called to reach out in the name of Christ in the community, but there's no better than. Because of Jesus Christ. We're all called to be servants. So he says, Timothy, my brother. And that's really special for him to say that as he's writing this letter. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I've had that experience a couple of times in my life. And it really blesses me when that happens. When on the one hand, I'm a child, but on the other hand, the person that is addressing gives me a sense of collegiality. John Guest, who some of you know. John was my rector, sponsored me for the ministry, married my wife and I, wonderful, incredibly gifted preacher. And one time, when he was actually trying to recruit me to be co-rector, he said, Greg, we're colleagues. And that really blessed me. I was actually taken aback by that. And my former boss from San Antonio, Ted Schroeder, when I came here 21 years ago as the rector, he came to preach my installation. Some of you might remember that. And he said to the congregation here, I feel like I'm giving you my son. Which really blessed me. And just a few years after that, he invited me to a group that he was in charge of. It's called the Covenant Group. And it's collegial. There's no higher than or lower than. See, in the Christian faith, there is no higher than or lower than. We may play different roles. We may be a little more experienced than others. We have something to impart at times. But really, essentially, we all need Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Paul then extends this to the people that he writes. He talks about them 
being brothers and sisters. He says they're holy, even though they're going through all kinds of challenges and there's heresies. He doesn't really specifically talk about those individually. He wants to affirm them for the faith that they have. And he wants to say to them, in effect, God has called me into a role with you. To be able to speak to you the truth into your life because really you're beginning to drift and you need the truth spoken into. This truth is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It's from God through Jesus Christ to you because he's appointed me to that. That's how the letter begins. That's how the letter begins. And then he says that wonderful phrase that you will find over and over again. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You know, grace is a gift. It's God giving us. God gives us tremendous gifts in our lives. But this grace is what Paul's wishing, hoping, praying for, for them. And it's based on the Old Testament word has said, which really has to do with loving kindness, and it's connected to the New Testament term agape, which is self-sacrificial love. Someone once described grace as Jesus in action with agape love. Isn't that great? That's what God wants for us. That kind of experience and understanding of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. That we are graced. We've been giving a gift. And that we need to receive that gift. And embrace that gift. And peace. The Greek term is irene. That's where we get the name Irene, by the way. But you know what the word really means in its background and its nuance? It means bound together. That's what peace means. Bound together. Have you ever said of anyone or to someone, he or she's really got it together? Remember that? We don't use that as much anymore. But they've got it together. What it really means is they really seem to have a peace and a confidence about their lives. That's what God wants us to experience. That we are bound together first and foremost with Him through Jesus Christ. That we become one with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we are together in ourselves because His grace has been poured out to us. And we experience His peace. And then we experience that being bound to each other. That's why there is no room for unforgiveness. No room. That we are called to bear one another, bear with one another, forgive each other. Because God in Christ forgave you. See, when we understand that kind of grace, and we understand and receive that kind of peace, how it transforms us. That we've experienced this gift of reconciliation as we see in 2 Corinthians 5. And then we share this reconciliation with those around us. There is not being unreconciled. 
Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we've been blessed with this reconciliation with the Father. That we've been embraced by His grace and His peace. And then we go out and we share that with other people. We learn to live by grace. We learn to live with peace. And we become a blessing to others because of that. What if we as the church could live that way all the time on a regular basis? And then Paul goes on to say, always thankful. Are you always thankful? I'll tell you what. You know, if you, if you get in your mind, by the way, what was going on in, in Colossae and what Paul was writing into. And he says of them, in my prayers, I'm always thankful for you. I strive for that. But boy, when I deal with people that are theologically so off base, or there's conflict and it's like, grow up, I'm not always at peace. I'm not always thankful. That's something that I need to grow into. But notice what he, what he says. With prayer and thanksgiving. And if you look at Scripture over and over again, there's that melting, there's that blending of those two together that when we are prayerful people, Paul in 1 Thessalonians, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Philippians chapter 4, again, that prison letter, that other prison letter. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And what results from that? And the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, what happens is when we really understand what God's goal in our life is, when we really experience and receive that grace and come to that peace with Him that we experience within ourselves that we are getting it together. I'm still getting it together. And then you experience through prayer the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we can live a grateful life. It's one of the reasons why many people don't live grateful lives. They live entitled lives. They live demanding lives. They live critical lives. They don't live grateful lives. And we're called to live a grateful life with thanksgiving. And Paul, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, the challenges that he's experienced, because he's focused in prayer, he's able to be thankful. And he's thankful for them. One commentator said of this whole situation and the language that's used, he used this phrase that I absolutely love, that the situation in Colossae, because it wasn't, a church established by Paul because he had not been in, that Paul was leaning into the situation. Isn't that a great image? Leaning into it. Let me give you an example of what that means. Do you ever stand next to someone and they're having either an intense conversation or a tearful conversation or something that seems very impassioned and you kind of lean in because you want to catch what's going on? Do you ever do that? Oh, come on. All of you have done that. Paul's leaning into the situation in Colossae. Because he cares. Because he wants them to experience this grace and peace. 
because He cares. One of the things we can take out of this is don't live in the past. Don't live in the past. Don't live in your past glory. Don't live in the status that maybe you experienced at one time. The ego that's involved, the pride that's involved in that. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the past because you're bound by sin or failure. And you carry this guilt or this shame with you. Don't live in the past. Learn from the past. Learn from your past experience. Learn from what's happened in the church. Learn from the people of God throughout Scripture and history. And then learn to live in the present by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God does not want us bound by the past. He wants us freed from the past. Whether it be past glory or past failure, it doesn't matter. God wants you to experience His grace and His peace now. Through the blood of Jesus Christ and His cross. Now. That's what He wants for all of us. You know, I've already experienced myself. You know how you live in the past sometimes and you can catch yourself doing this? The Steelers. (laughs) This is going to be a bad year. Some of you, Georgia fans, South Carolina fans, you've already had your loss this year. Oh, to be undefeated. Don't get caught up in the past. Learn to live in the present. Learn to live with God's grace and His peace right now because that's what He wants from you. You know, even Laodicea that was relying on its wealth and its past and its history and how they had risen... The angel that comes to John and says, right to this church, says, you're poor. You think you're wealthy, but you're poor. But, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's what he's offering. That's what he wants for you. And it doesn't matter what the challenges are that you experience today. Because God can overcome those challenges through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit if you let Him. And we are surrounded by challenges, by heresies, by philosophies and theologies that are off base and have nothing to do with the truth of Jesus Christ. And you yourself may have even bought into some of that. Let it go. Let it go. Learn to discover anew the grace of God in Jesus Christ and what God's desire really is for you. You know, in the past few weeks, I used Scripture Union for my readings. And a couple weeks ago, we were reading in the book of Judges. Now, many of you probably aren't familiar with the book of Judges, but the book of Judges really, the judges are these people that the Lord raises up at different times in Israel's history to kind of help them when they're struggling. 
And you know, Israel, the people of God, are like many of us in our lives and many people in our churches. They ride the roller coaster. You know, they're there. This judge shows up. This charismatic leader shows up that the Lord raises up. And they're there. Yes, we got this. And in 20 or 30 years, they're done. And the Lord has to raise up another leader. And then they go down again. And they ride the roller coaster. When the Lord doesn't want us to experience that, He wants us to experience that grace and peace all the time. Two examples. Gideon. You ever heard of Gideon? A lot of people know of Gideon because of the fleece. You know, we're going to lay out a fleece. Gideon was a guy who doubted. Who lived around idolatry. And yet the Lord chose him, picked him, because he had faith, raised him up and used him to transform Israel. Samson. Now there's a piece of work. Samson was a mess. He was raised in the faith as a Nazarite, given over to the Lord. And he messed up. And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord used him in a powerful way. The Lord doesn't choose to use people because they're perfect. Paul was not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. That's not the point. God wants people whose hearts are given over to Him. He does not look at our status. He does not look at what we've done for Him. He does not look at how we've achieved in this world. He does not look at our athletic successes, our wonderful gifts that we've been given. He doesn't look how, at how beautiful or handsome we are. He looks at our hearts. And he says, I have a desire for you. My desire is that you would know the truth. The truth about your life, the truth about my son, the truth about my desire for you. And I want you to know that grace, and I want you to know that peace. And it comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through spending time with Him in prayer with thanksgiving every day. As we begin this series on Colossians, that's my prayer for you. That you would discover this grace and this peace every day. And that you would learn through prayer with thanksgiving to live a grateful life and live for Him every day. The gospel reading comes in the upper room, John 13, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. The sacrificial love that we're talking about, that we are to embrace in our lives and live in our lives. It comes on the heels of Jesus washing their feet and saying, Understand, this is not about status. This is about servanthood. This is about being wholly given over to the Lord and thereby, through His love and His sacrifice, discovering the grace and peace that He has for you. Let's commit to that together this fall as we study Colossians together. Please bow with me in prayer.
Lord God, I thank you that you don't look at our successes. And you don't focus on our failures. Lord, in the midst of the pride of our life and the sin in our life, you offer your Son, Jesus Christ. And you offer us the power of your Holy Spirit to bring transformation to our lives. Lord, how desperately we all want to live with that grace and that peace. How wonderful it would be if we could live grateful lives every day. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would come to us this day. That you would make the cross of your Son, Jesus, real to us. That we truly would be washed by his blood and cleansed and transformed. And that no matter what heresy or compromised faith that might be in this room, that you would wash it away. Whatever pride or guilt or shame, that you would wash it away. And that we would be people who live into your grace and live with your peace and live grateful lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.